Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey y'all, welcome to my very first Q&A podcast. So I've been posting on Fridays on Substack thread, just an open question to ask me stuff. Sometimes I can answer you and sometimes I can't. Usually the line that I have to draw in the sand is I cannot answer any specific questions about children that I don't know because I am not clinically treating that child. And I can't answer complex or detailed questions about dynamics between kids or teachers and kids or parents and kids when I don't know the full story. But what I can answer is general topics that keep coming up with parents, with teachers, with kids whether it's a clinical topic or an educational topic or a child psychology question or just something in general, a parenting question, I would love to share my thoughts um, based on my experience as a child psychologist, my years of experience as a school psychologist, and also as a parent raising neurodivergent kids. So I hope that some of my answers to questions either in the Substack thread or that I highlight in today's podcast are helpful. Every Friday on my Substack for paid subscribers, you can ask me anything you want and I may answer you in the thread there or I will pull out your question and highlight it on a Q&A episode of the podcast. So today we have three questions, so I'm excited to dive in. Okay, first question that came from a parent is, how do I choose a provider to test my child? So this is a question that I get a lot, and it's a complex world out there, (laughs) y'all, of does the school test them? Does the pediatrician see them? What's the difference between a PhD and an MD provider? 
Do I need a private practice therapist? What if they don't take my insurance? These are all things that I actually cover in the referral tracker, that free download for parents. I explain everybody's job because there are different types of therapists, psychologists, and for instance, licensed clinical social workers are different. The thing you need to know is that medical doctors, like a pediatrician, developmental pediatrician, or psychiatrist, can give diagnoses based on the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. A psychologist can also do that. Psychologists' training is a little bit more in-depth because we are trained in learning, we are trained in development, and we're going to give measures that dig a little bit deeper. So if you are curious about things that are fairly straightforward in terms of filling out a checklist and talking to your doctor, so things like ADHD, where a pediatrician can have you fill out a checklist, have your teacher fill out a checklist, talk to you, has known your child for a long time, has observed your child, is observing your child in the office, spends time with you that's more than just a quick conversation, it's absolutely possible for that pediatrician to diagnose ADHD, to diagnose anxiety, to see anxiety. It is incredibly hard to tease out how that is complicated by learning or autism or a developmental delay. And that's something that we would want to look deeper into more psychological or psychoeducational or neuropsychological testing. You're going to want to do neuropsychological testing if there's any seizure disorder, tics disorders, or, of course, traumatic brain injury, um, or just incredibly complicated learning in terms of multiple learning disabilities or memory and executive functioning concerns. Those are things that a neuropsychologist will dig deeper on. So the difference between school psychologists and psychologists in private practice are that school psychologists are free to you in public schools in America. They also are highly trained to get to the bottom of what is impacting that child's learning. I was a school psychologist. I was trained as a school psychologist. I fully believe in the free access to this information that we give families, that we give students, and support with teachers. And so you can absolutely access your school psychologist to provide testing. Of course, you will not have a school psychologist available to you if your child is in private school. Um, school psychologists are only going to be working in public and charter schools. If you are thinking about having your child privately evaluated, then you're looking for a child psychologist who has experience working with children, presenting with the thing that you're concerned about for your child. So for instance, it definitely makes a difference if a psychologist who's testing your child has never worked with a child with autism and they're testing for autism. <laughs> like that is something we want to think about. So we are all trained, of course, that we need to be working within the scope of our expertise. It would be unethical not to do that. So you're looking for a provider that has worked with lots of kids that have the presenting characteristics that you're concerned about, whether that is something that needs to be supported or whether that's something that needs to be differentiated and enriched. Like for instance, if your child is both gifted and you are curious if they are autistic, you're going to want 
a person, a provider who knows more about that um, complexity of a presentation. So think about your child. Think about the things that you want that person to investigate and, you know, do your due diligence on reading through where did they do their internship and postdoctoral training or um, master's level psychologists in some states are highly qualified to do testing, even though they don't have doctorates. It just depends on their training. So you're going to be looking at how they were trained, if the words that they're describing in their education and in their training match up with some of the expertise that you're looking for in terms of knowing the similar types of profile for your child. So in addition to that, the last thing I will say is thinking about kind of just the positivity and the skills slash support weaknesses mindset you want a provider to have. Um, You know, we are all thinking through shifting our lens as we absolutely need to into um, more so being strengths-based clinicians. You know, I've done this pretty much my whole career, but I think that lots in education are shifting into thinking about strengths-based mindsets instead of what can you not do and what do we need to support? Yes, an evaluation is going to get to the bottom of all that, but it's really easy to just focus on the weaknesses and say, these are the things that are hard, and so we need to support those. So you don't want a provider to only talk about the weaknesses because, in my opinion, you want to balance that with all of your child's strengths. That's how we're going to lean into things like motivation and and catching a glimpse of what they love to do and what makes their eyes sparkle and things like that. All of that's really important. So when you talk to a clinician about what they're going to look at, think through how they talk about it, because that's probably how they will write about it and the report and how they will communicate it as they're collaborating to your school team or with you. And um, you want to make sure that, you know, some of the ways that they're talking about your child matches how you want your child to be talked about. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com tracker to get started. Okay, so our next question is from 
a elementary administrator. I get this question a lot, and I'm going to highlight it today because I really, really want all the parents listening to feel that vulnerability that you may feel in just a minute and keep an open mind and keep an open mind about your own mental wellness and things that we all see when we talk to parents because I am of the mindset that sometimes we get in our kids' way and I want us to have insight into that and to notice if we feel defensive about these moments, but also realize, oh my gosh, I don't want to be in my kid's way. So keep that in mind. Okay. So an elementary administrator reached out and is asking me to talk more about anxious parents. So she is noticing many anxious parents, and she describes that she sees children who seem very well adjusted at school but their parents' anxiety is making it very difficult for the child because the angst that they seem to be feeling is getting passed off to the children. So for instance, parents seem to not want their child to experience the least bit of uncomfortable feelings or feeling discouraged, and they seem like they're willing to do just about anything to prevent their child from feeling that, but then that's anxiety-provoking for the parent, which gets us into a negative feedback loop of, the child feeling anxious because the parent's anxious. So I just want to share that this is a very real thing that I see as a child psychologist. And in part of my work, I try really hard to help parents take a step back and make sure that everything they're doing is in the best interest of not only their child today, but in the future. And we're always striking a balance between supporting your child and not enabling your child. And All the stuff in the middle between support and enabling is what grows independence. That's how we nurture independence. So we don't want to do so much that our child is not independent, even if it makes us feel better. We need to get really clear on what is our definition of success here. And in order for our child's brain to grow, they have to feel uncomfortable, y'all. They have to feel discouraged. They have to feel discomfort. Not so much that they're going into a stress state or that they're going into fight or flight, but that zone of learning that Vygotsky talks about, which is they're just beyond that point of mastery. They're feeling like they can do it, and then they're going just beyond that. We need to let kids feel that. And If you see your child struggling, you are going to feel uncomfortable. This is a part of parenting. And I think that over generations, parenting pendulums have swung one way and then they swing back the other way. And I just wanted to open the conversation for helping parents recognize their own anxiety and maybe recognizing when your anxiety might be getting in the way of your kid feeling a feeling that is seriously growing their brain in a good direction so that they become more resilient for the next time. So I do think that this is something that's happening to lots of parents, and it's a learning curve, right? So that first time we see our kids struggle, it's awful. It feels terrible. And then we have to realize, okay, as long as they're safe 
as long as they're in a place where I know they're safe, I know they're with another person, like their teacher that I trust. This, of course, goes back to my whole conversation about why it's so important for parents to trust teachers. Your kids are going to have uncomfortable feelings about learning. That's Learning is a vulnerable experience. They're going to do all these things that are hard, and they're going to make mistakes, and they have to do those things because we all learn best from experiencing the feelings of making mistakes. I wrote a whole nother blog about mistakes that I would love for you to go back and read or listen to on the podcast. We learn, honestly, the least well when people just tell us how to do stuff. I mean, think about your own learning. And when you learn the best is when we're out in the field or on the job training. And when our kids make mistakes, that's their on-the-job training, and it has to happen for them to make progress and for them to build resiliency. So I would just encourage all parents to check yourself sometimes and see, oh my gosh, am I getting in the way of my kid? And what is it about the situation that's triggering me and that's making me feel so worried? And I always encourage parents, if you can't figure out if it's your anxiety or if it's your kid's um, anxiety or kids' behavior, see what the child can do at school when you're not in the room. Because if they're capable of it at school, they're capable of it. We just have to figure out helping that skill become generalized across settings. Okay, and last question I'm going to talk through today is geared towards teen parents. And it is, how do we support a teen that doesn't want our help? So here's the deal. I'm not sure most of our teens want our help. <laughs> it doesn't matter what's going on with them. Um, I live with a 15-year-old. He sometimes wants my help. He sometimes doesn't. But asking for help, accepting help, all of those are incredibly vulnerable experiences. And I would say teenagers, among the whole human development time frame, adolescence is the time where we probably accept help the least. We aren't great at everything, but we want to be independent when we're teenagers. And then there are all these people around us giving us advice, and we don't want to be told what to do, right? So there's all kinds of reasons that teens don't want help. I think it's harder when a teen might be depressed and they might be feeling down and not have the energy so that could be part of what's going on with not wanting help. And we, of course, would want to talk to your pediatrician or a mental health provider to get support for your child because they won't be able to make progress until we first stabilize the mood. So part of that low energy could be some sadness or depression. It also could be that they're demand avoidant. They don't want help because it wasn't their idea. And this is true of most teenagers. I mean, how many people listening have teenagers and you say, you know, I've told this child the same thing, but their teacher says it or their coach says it or their therapist says it and or their friend says it. And all of a sudden it's a great idea. So sometimes it's just the relational dynamic of parent-child is like a stone wall of communication at times during adolescence. And so helping kids have a variety of caregivers in their life that they trust can be so helpful because they may accept help from another person, but not from us as their parents. And that would be okay as long as they're accepting help. We also want to make sure 
that our child is motivated and interested, we really need to get to the bottom of what are we trying to help them with? Is it something that is absolutely crucial? Or is it something that we think they should be doing? And if it's something that's not that crucial, at least not right now, and we're the only ones that think they should be doing it, most teens would reject that idea because they don't think it's important. And then you add on top of that, they could be demand avoidant if we say it. And then they could not care because it's not their interest, which many neurodivergent teens work much better when things are aligned with their motivations and their interests. So I would say just to think through those ideas and we want to make sure the mood is stabilized. We want to diversify how many caregivers are in a child's life because they will sometimes not listen to us and listen to other people. And then we want to make sure that the thing that we think they need help with, they think they need help with. Because most of us, not just teenagers, won't be motivated to ask for help and push through that vulnerability until we are internally motivated to make that thing better. So sometimes it just takes time. And sometimes we just hold space for teens and let them know that we're here. We just keep showing up for them. And that's the most important thing to do for teens. Okay, y'all, I hope you have enjoyed the Q&A time. If you want more access to Q&A, you can become a paid subscriber on Substack and every Friday join the threads. And you can also drop questions there. That's where I get these questions for Q&A podcasts. And I hope to do more Q&A podcasts in the future. Let me know what you think in the comments on social or send me a message through um, Substack or through my website. And we will get together again next week on the podcast. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily at the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.